If you don't know that much about quantum computing, there's no need to feel bad. You are far from alone. In November of 2019, Jack Hittery, who is affiliated with Google and is the author of Quantum Computing, an Applied Approach, said that he believed only 800 people in the world have the expertise needed to truly understand how to apply quantum algorithms. Some of those people work at Seek, a quantum computing company headquartered in Elmsford, New York, with facilities in London and Naples, Italy. Seek's approach to building a quantum computer is quite unique and offers a roadmap for scalable, application-based quantum computers, which can be leveraged to solve some of the world's greatest challenges. This is a series of interviews published by that company. In this episode, Seek Creative Director Frederick Karlstrom speaks to Caleb Jordan about his work designing quantum chips. If you want to know more about Seek and the work they do to make computers for the quantum age, you can visit them at seek.com. Now, the conversation with Caleb Jordan. How did you get into to technology? How did you get into quantum? That's an interesting question because I don't, I don't, I'm not sure exactly. So I was into computers as a kid. Not many people had computers, but I enjoyed playing with them and fiddling with them. And I was obsessed with like movies about technology and stuff. I spent most of my childhood building computers and building electronics or playing with whatever I could and being like tech support for all the old ladies in my neighborhood who had modems. It kind of made sense for me to go into an engineering type path. And so I went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, RPI, in Troy, New York. And there, there was like a huge focus on like pushing people to do like just really cool stuff. The crazier it sounds, the like better it is. They had like a why not change the world was like their like motto at the time. And they had like a seminar at some point on quantum computing. And I was like, that's awesome. That's like computers plus physics, which I think is really cool. And so pretty early on in my college career, I decided that's what I wanted to do. And so I realized I had to do physics if I wanted to do that because everyone that was doing it was physicists. So I was an engineer. So I switched to physics. I found a grad school nearby in Syracuse where there's a professor doing superconducting quantum computing. And I was like, that's perfect. Awesome. And so I got out of my undergrad and into grad school as quickly as possible. And at Syracuse, I actually was part of some of the first experiments on integrating SFQ technology with superconducting qubits. And so it's just been kind of a natural path for me this whole time coming from there to see. And what do you do here? What's your what's your job at Seek? My job at Seek is currently kind of a jack of all trades, but mostly quantum designer. So I'm the one who takes the specifications of we need X number of qubits to do certain thing um, and translates that into a circuit and then translates that circuit into shapes, pieces of metal that we actually fabricate onto a chip. And then we send that out to get fabricated. And hopefully it does what we wanted it to do. So who do you work with? I initially worked most closely with our UK team. Um, I was initially supposed to actually go there but before COVID hit, so then I wasn't able to. Now I work most tightly with Alex, who is our SFQ designer. I make the quantum part of our devices, and he designs the digital part of our devices, and they have to mate together and work together properly. And so he and I have to work very closely and make sure that what I'm designing, what he's designing, go together properly and work correctly. You design. Is the process different than designing... I don't know, graphic design or product design or what's, what is your, can you talk a little bit about your process? Yeah. So if you watched me work, it would look like I was doing some bizarre graphic design. Like I'm just manipulating a bunch of shapes on a screen and a bunch of different colors. But essentially what I'm doing is I'm, I'm drawing pieces of metal that are going to end up in a, a film on a chip. 
And each of these pieces of metal represents a part of the circuit that has to have some sort of, it's called a capacitance, or some sort of interaction through electric or magnetic fields to other parts of the circuit. And so I have to draw these shapes in a way that they have the appropriate interactions with the other shapes. And so it's, it's, it feels very artsy at times because sometimes the constraints are relaxed enough that I can kind of draw whatever I want. I could make something look like a flower if I wanted to. But there are all these, like, obviously the physics has to be met properly so that whenever we cool this thing down, it does the physics that we want. It's, it's really fun for me because I get to exercise, like, the creative part of my brain and also the very technical part of my brain. Have you done, like, a crazy design ever? Like, is there a kind of a chip design hall of fame where, <laughs> you know, what's the, what's the hierarchy of, of, of the field? So in grad school, I was always working on sponsored projects, so projects that were sponsored by government programs. And so the experiments were kind of laid out. There was a structure to what had to be done. And so we had to design circuits that met those requirements. Whereas here, we kind of got to uh, start from scratch. So what is our qubit? What does our qubit look like? Um, and we could just get our requirements from what we wanted it to do. And so we got a bit more freedom into what the circuits could look like. And so I had always wanted to make, for example, a, a circular qubit which for whatever reason isn't a very common geometry for what a qubit looks like. They're usually either like rectangular or X's is very popular. And so as soon as I got the opportunity here for like, let's start from scratch, start with a qubit, I was like, I'm going to make my circular qubit finally. And I actually got to. And so all of our in-house qubit designs so far have been using this kind of angularly or symmetric uh, circular design, which I think is, is very kind of natural. Let's talk a little bit about our approach, this whole idea of uh, application-specific versus mm -hmm. sort of general use. Can you talk about that? Like, how does that affect your way of working or your process? What's nice about our approach is whenever we start with, we start with the end goal. So we start with, we need a, a circuit or a chip that satisfies this particular requirement. And so essentially, I get to design a bespoke circuit so to speak, or it feels like somewhat artisanal, like the circuit that I might design to do this isn't the same thing I would do over here. It's very custom to that algorithm or that architecture that we're trying to implement at that time. So whereas if you were just making a general circuit that has some number of qubits with some connectivity, you're basically repeating just some pattern across a chip and you just grow that pattern. Whereas in our approach, the connectivity and the placement of the qubits can be completely unique to that specific problem that we're trying to solve. So every, de every device could look completely different and that makes it it makes it to me more fun, but it's also more challenging. You used the word bespoke just now. Have you spoken to John in the last few days? No. That's so funny because we had this long conversation about all this stuff, and we basically came to the conclusion in, in the conversation, we started talking about customized. Yeah. And at first we, we landed on bespoke, and then we landed on customized. <laughs> and the metaphor is like, okay, you can go and buy stuff at H&M. Mm -hmm. It's like off the rack, and it's, you know, that's usually, and, and it's scalable. Mm -hmm. And there's, a, there's an inherent conflict between those two words, like scalable and bespoke. Like sure. You go to your tailor and you get a suit tailor, that's not scalable. Exactly. I want you to, actually, it's funny that you would say that. We were talking about how we are both. We are mm -hmm. bespoke or we are customized scalability because we, are, we do it for a specific problem mm -hmm. and it's scalable, not because we can just copy and make a thousand of them or a million of them, like mm -hmm. software or something, but we can keep using it in, in, in that vertical for that client, you know what I mean? Does that make sense to you? Like it's still yeah. it's scalable in, on, on a system level. Exactly. And and not on a it doesn't necessarily mean on like a production level. Right. We're trying to make it scalable yeah. so because can you, can you talk about that actually? <laughs> like in technology in any kind of mass manufacturing, sure. scalability usually means you can copy it. You can make a CD with you know Mac OS or something. Mm -hmm. and just pump it out. But in this case, it's it's bespoke and scalable. Does that make sense? So what's bespoke about the quantum circuit is that. 
we configure it to most optimally try to tackle whatever algorithm. The qubits and how the qubits are arranged and interact with each other is in a very uh, custom design. But the circuits that actually control and manipulate and read out those, those qubits are virtually the same regardless of the particular configuration. And so that aspect, the control and readout circuits, that's the part that's very difficult to scale. And that's the part that we you know, think we have the solution to in RSFQ technology. And so we are free to make these crazy and large, uh, potentially qubit arrangements, and we don't have to worry about having a thousand wires coming in from room temperature down to, to the fridge and blowing up the scaling at, at room temperature because we can put control circuits and readout circuits that are basically the size of the qubits themselves just in the package with the qubits. And so we're definitely more free to grow these circuits because we don't have those same constraints. So yeah, it's a very custom application and a custom architecture, but the components that are difficult for other people to scale up are very easy for us to scale up. How does one bridge this, this idea that on the one hand, we know we always need to communicate what we're doing and what we're thinking about and attract our clients and we are working with clients on the one hand. On the other hand, we have you know, this sort of long tradition from a scientific perspective of you don't really talk about stuff until it's you've published and been peer reviewed and it's, you know, proven and it's all done. Obviously, we have a bunch of things that we've done, but there's lots of things that hasn't been proven yet. Can you talk about kind of that fine line between hype and talking or whatever? Open communication is something that's it's almost like a, a paradox among a lot of scientists because we naturally love the idea of talking and sharing our ideas, but there's also like this unspoken rule sometimes that you're uncomfortable saying something until you know that it works or you know that it's right. And so I think all physicists especially, and I see it in quantum computing very regularly, like we have a lot of great ideas, but you don't just want to blurt them out loud because you could also be completely wrong. And so um, there is definitely a culture of, of being open and sharing things in the quantum community, which I, I really enjoy. It's one of the things about the field that I think makes it great to work in because it's still so new that everyone benefits from open communication. Everyone benefits from sharing designs or methodologies or particular experiments, techniques. And so we haven't gotten to the point of everything being locked down into corporate know-how. It's still very uh, sharing oriented. And that's, I think, what's driving the field forward for as quickly as, as it's going is, is a group over here on one side of the planet can figure something out. And six months later, all the groups on this side of the planet are now doing that new technique. And um, we are taking advantage of that. And I hope that we also have some cool things to also share with the field. But the SFQ side of things is such a, a niche thing that there's not that many people on the planet that are having the experience with or doing this sort of technology. And so we're definitely very lucky to have all of the you know, decades of experience to using this SFQ technology in our company, because that's not a field where there's as much progress recently, but we have, you know, the inventors, <laughs> so to speak, working with us, and that's awesome. Can you explain SFQ, what, what it is? What SFQ technology is analogous to transistor-based semiconducting technology, except instead of using voltages, we're using currents, or what you call a flux, which is the magnetic field you get from a current. In superconductors especially, this is just very natural. You can take advantage of specific physical phenomena like flux quantization to make circuits that work with pretty high margins. Um, but you also need this element called a Josephson junction instead of a transistor. And this, this Josephson junction acts as the nonlinear element that lets you do um, all the complex things you need to do to, to do digital digital uh, logic. And so the way it essentially works is this this 
junction, if it gets enough current going through it past some critical current, it can switch. And below that, it doesn't switch. But once it switches, it can feed current to other Josephson junctions. And so by just arranging these junctions in a way and controlling how much current goes where, you can create cells of these junctions that can do AND gates or OR gates. And once you can build enough primitive cells like that, you can build any logical circuit. It's not as, it's not as mature as CMOS in the sense that CMOS has had decades of hundreds of thousands of engineers worth of brain power refining it and refining it and refining it and refining it to the point that it's, it's as robust and incredible as it is now. SFQ is more like a, I don't know, small teams working their, their uh, improving things over the, over the years. But it, it's still very good at what it does. What it does best, it does way better than CBOS. It's very fast and it's very energy efficient if, if used right. So uh, what do you think, to do your job, what are the kind of, other than knowing sort of certain things, what are the main characteristics that make you a good, good designer? Um, I, I, I think what makes me good at what I do is that I'm very scattered. Like, I, I like doing a bunch of somewhat unrelated things. I'm not, a, I'm not a specialist in the sense of I do one thing very, very well. I do a lot of things pretty well. <laughs> And so our devices require so many various levels of thought. And it's still so new that you can't really have one person that specific job is like the managing like the thermal properties of this device. And one person's job is managing this particular side of the circuit. Everything has to be so tightly integrated that as many people need to be looking at as many things as possible. And so I get to look at all of those things. I get to think about how is this fabricated. I get to imagine this chip or this device in, in 3D space and think of how is activity in a circuit over here going to potentially disrupt part of the circuit working over here. So it, it gets to like activate the, the spatial part of my brain in a way that you wouldn't think if you're just thinking about circuits. And then of course I get to, you know, run simulations and, and draw all these pretty things. And then I get to make the chip. Well, I don't make the chip, but we, we make the chip and I, we get to cool it down and measure it. And I'm, I'm involved in that you know, part as well. So from like beginning to end, I get to dab my foot into every little part. And so I feel like at the end, it's, it's like my baby. Like I brought you this, this whole way. Now go do what I made you to do, hopefully. <laughs> and so far, that's kind of worked. What would you say is sort of unique about working at a company like Seek? We, you know, I, mean, I guess one thing that it makes us unique is that we have the foundry, we have all the testing, we have mm -hmm. you know, design, but are there other things that you'd say that makes it special to be here? Yeah, the, the first thing is the fact that we're still such a small company means, again, that we're, we're all pretty involved in everything that's happening. So I can be working in design for a couple of weeks, but I still know everything that's going on in fab and everything that's going on on the test side of things and vice versa, because we're very, very close-knit. We all have regular meetings. We all see each other and talk to each other very regularly. And one of the things that I think is really, really awesome about us is everything is very experimental. And I don't mean that in, like, obviously we are making experiments that need to, to do something. But very regularly, I will have a conversation with, like, one of the fab guys or one of the other circuit designers about, hmm, I wonder if we could do this and we'll just make it we'll just design it and put it on the next round of chips and test and see if it works. Like, and everyone is always thinking that. 
so we we have that freedom where we can if we have an idea we can we can act on it because we're making our own devices and we have our own test facility it's not like there's this um structured timeline of what gets made and what priority and then something like a pet project or a cool idea gets squeezed in wherever it can here it's like those pet projects or those ideas that we have have the same priority as the other devices because we don't know which of those could completely change how we do things which of those could be like breakthrough ideas so having the freedom to to do that and know that i can throw out an idea and people will consider it and potentially even act on it that's really cool and i i, I don't think that that exists everywhere what do you see as sort of the vision for the future if you if you and the team succeed in doing what you're doing what do you think will happen what are you what are the benefits to the world so the way that i think of what we do is that we're making we're making technology but i think of it as we're making a tool or an instrument and so we're basically introduced with a problem and we try to create the optimal tool to solve it and so hopefully along the way we can kind of build a toolkit right a toolbox of, of various tools for various problems that can be used and it's very likely that those tools that we develop will end up getting used to solve problems that maybe we don't intentionally design them for or they get used for, as what happens with everything. You know what I mean? So I, I try to not dwell too hard on like exact use cases. That doesn't mean that I obviously don't want to solve a particular problem. Like if we're if, if we're asked to design something or make something that does a that solves a problem or or executes some particular algorithm, we're gonna do that as, as well as we can. But it's nice to know that the, the bits and pieces that we develop and design to do that are now, you know, tools in our toolbox that we can use for other problems going forward. And that can be used for problems that we haven't even thought of yet. And to me, that that's the most exciting part is it's not the stuff. It's not even necessarily the the intended use cases. It's what are people going to be using this, this stuff for in 30 years? Because I think that's been very true of pretty much all modern technology. And so I'm going to try to put this tool out into the world, put this technology out into the world, and then let humans do what humans do, which is use it for something else and make it better. Do you feel like you're part of a, of a chain? Like, do you feel like you're, there's a continuation from Einstein and Lovelace and all the people on the wall and many others that, that you like, you're playing or that Seek is playing a small role in, in sort of standing on giants or whatever metaphor you want to use? Do you feel that way, that you're part of this timeline? Yeah, so I would say that, especially in my lifetime, there's been such enormous technological progress. And so much of it has come from these, if you try to explain the idea to someone 10 years before it happened, no one would understand it or think of why we would even try to do that. Why would we make an internet or why would we make cell phones that have the internet? And so this progression of, of just tackling larger and larger and larger problems it feels cool to be a part of that because once quantum computing becomes, you know, a mainstream useful technology, it will definitely be awesome to, you know, feel like I had a part in that. Maybe that I was responsible for like some minuscule fraction of, of what made it actually work because the problems that we face as a society now are typically so large that it really does take like armies of engineers and, and thousands or millions of brains uh, working on them and so to be a brain that gets to work on this problem like i feel lucky i feel like that's a, a great use of my of my time and and my my passion 
And yeah, it's, it's also really awesome to think of here I am building this brand new cutting edge technology. And then if I need to you know, do the math that explains how it works, very often I have to go back and look at textbooks using equations that were written down 100 years ago. And that's insane to me, but that, that's, that's how it works, right? Exponential progress works because we build on what happened before. So every step forward, we have more to work with and more to base on. And so this is just the next step. So, so let's talk a little bit about quantum Somebody said, you know, we're building tools inspired by nature. Is it a spiritual thing for you? Like, do you feel connected to nature? I like the idea of analog technology because, like, I think most people, when they think of analog technology, they think of, like, steampunk kinds of things where you have these, like, moving parts and sounds and it's very noisy and heat. It's very clearly this, like, mechanical beast that's doing something that it was designed for, whether it's, like, an engine or anything. To me, any form of analog computing is like that. You're making something physical or that exists in nature solve some problem in some way. And what your job is, is to take the problem that you want and pose the question to nature in the right way. So nature follows these laws, these physical laws, and those don't change. Those are, those are what they are. And if you're clever enough to word your problem in a way that those laws will result in the answer, nature will always give you the right answer. And that's what quantum computing is, right? We are building these circuits that allow us to access what are just natural laws, but in a way that we get to pose questions to it and let nature answer them for us. And if we ask the question right in the right way, we will get back the correct answer in a time that we could never do if we were just running it on supercomputers with brute force. And so that feels amazing, right? Because we it, it's like a connection with nature that humans haven't really had before. Like we've taken advantage of gravity. We've taken advantage of, you know, projectile motion. We've taken advantage of thermodynamics. We've taken advantage of all these other things. But very rarely do humans get to actually take advantage of quantum mechanics or quantum physics in a way that makes our life better. But this is how we can. When you were asked at a dinner party or by a friend, like what you do or how do you explain quantum? I mean, you just did kind of, kind of beautifully actually, but are there other ways for you to sort of talk about quantum? Typically, I avoid talking about exactly what I do with people because there are so many misunderstandings about quantum mechanics to begin with. And there's also just been this like you can't walk through the grocery store without seeing the word quantum on like a dishwasher detergent, you know, like everything is described as quantum this and quantum that. It's almost just like a word that means nothing anymore. So when you tell people that you're like, I'm a quantum engineer, you know, people don't have a good idea of what that means. And so I say, working on building quantum computers and quantum technology, and they don't know what that means. And so you got to define a quantum computer and most people don't know what that means. And so... That's the frustrating part of being in hard science is hard sciences are very disconnected from the mainstream. So essentially what I say to them is, you know, we try to make computing devices that utilize quantum mechanics to solve problems, which is completely accurate. It's just harder than it sounds. Is there a way to define, because you mentioned for like asking a question correctly, you can get the answer. That's essentially saying, you know, there's certain things that are quantum problems and certain things that are not, right? Mm -hmm. Is it a simple way of describing what a quantum problem is or, or, no? or no? Yeah, the problems that are good quantum problems aren't always obvious. So some of the obvious ones are problems that at their core involve quantum mechanics. So if you're trying to simulate a molecule or some sort of um, 
small molecular chain or, 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 or atoms, quantum computing makes sense because, again, you're, you're just mapping this physical system onto another physical system in a way that you can infer from your physical system that matches the system that you're trying to learn about. And so those are the obvious problems because making a non-quantum computer solve those problems is not super easy, especially once the, the molecule, let's say, that you're trying to simulate Gets, gets large enough. It's just it's very 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 difficult for normal computers to to do this accurately, and so that's the obvious. I would say the obvious, and that and that's the problem that quantum computing was somewhat initially thought up by. So when Feynman you know introduced this idea of quantum computing, it was with the idea that it's really hard to simulate quantum mechanics, and so I think we have a, a lot that we're going to get out of that particular path. The other good quantum problems that aren't so obvious are not so obvious. And so things that might involve um, optimizations or finding like minimum or maximums of particular uh, problems where it's not like you're trying to calculate the perfect exact answer. You're trying to find a good answer from a billion possible combinations. That's where quantum mechanics can help you out because you can, in a way, simulate all the possible combinations at once. It's not exactly that easy, but that's you can do something similar to that. And so anywhere where you can take advantage of something like a mass a massive parallelization where you can make the the quantum states your space that you're operating on, you could potentially see some benefit. And so of those problems you have things like um Shor's algorithm, like Grover search algorithm or any of the other many various optimization um, algorithms that use that idea. But I, I think, and I think most people in the field think that the, the hero problem that quantum computing is going to help us solve probably hasn't been suggested yet, which is crazy because already just those justify the effort, just, just the, the Schwarz algorithm and the Grover search and the simulation of the of quantum you know molecules or whatever uh, just that to me is enough to make this whole effort worth it but to know that maybe in five years we'll have some great idea makes it even more worth it right if you are uh speaking to kind of a i mean some of our clients or like an executive at a big company or somebody who wants to get into kind of deep technology or hard or hard times uh, or quantum for that matter what you know it's quite intimidating quite a big field and it's not many people who really truly understand it what, what would your advice be for somebody who wants to sort of get into it if you think that you want a quantum computer or if, if you think you can take advantage of a quantum computer in some way you really need to make sure that it will actually solve your problem and it will actually help you in a way that you want because again not every problem requires a quantum solution and so before you invest the time and the effort into pursuing that path, make sure that that's the right one. And so don't just go into the quantum mindset just because there's you know hype or it sounds really cool. Um, it's almost like machine learning where, yes, maybe some machine learning algorithm can solve your problem. Doesn't necessarily mean it's the best one, but for certain problems, you definitely want something like that. And so this is, this is one of those technologies. And so you definitely need to find some good quantum information scientists who can analyze your problems, tell you th whether or not solutions exist to, to meet them. So 
where was he where, I mean, what part of this all whole effort is like we're working on a on a brand, <clears> right? <throat> Partly yeah. because you know, for Seek to be a brand, mm. but also to sort of create sort of a platform for the entire industry, you know, and, and I guess our idea is that it will help with talent, attract clients, attract sort of collaboration. Well, I'll just ask you, like, do you think it's a good idea? And if so, yet yeah, why? Do I think well, it's a good idea? For us to, to create a brand. If you think about a lot of the other companies that are in the deep science space, they don't seem to care that much about kind of how they're the external sort of mm-hmm. view. So I guess my question is, why are we doing a brand for Seek? And do you, do you think it makes sense? And Yeah, I think having a brand is important if the brand accurately reflects the people in the company and what we're trying to do. And I think if it does that successfully, then potential customers or potential partners will recognize that and feel familiar and want to reach out to us and look like, hey, these are guys who could potentially solve my problem. Over time, you hope that your portfolio of work becomes your brand. And you hope that what sets you apart and what causes people to want to work with you is the great work that you have done. As a brand new company, you don't have that. And so the best we can do is tell everyone, well, here's what we're trying to do. This is how we're trying to do it. And this is why we're trying to do it. And that becomes our brand. And I like our brand. (laughs) I think it's very different from the other quantum players at the moment. Seek is mainly different in our application-specific approach and the idea that we're not just claiming that we're going to build you know, the world's first quantum computer. We're saying, let's work with someone on a problem and try to find the optimal solution for your problem and build a device that will solve that problem for you. And I think that's an approach that I haven't seen from anyone else yet. And I feel like, especially early on, when we are this far from something like quantum error correction, where we can have just general purpose quantum computers, you really need these ASIC devices, these application specific uh, computers to kind of whittle away at the low hanging fruit, the, the problems that can be solved with what we have now. And so I think having that be our main focus is unique. And hopefully it means that we'll also get to some good breakthroughs before other people do. That's, that's what I'm excited about. Awesome. Last question. Recruiting is obviously important. We're hiring a bunch of people. Yes. Why should anybody work here? What I really like about working here is even though we're constantly growing and expanding and everything's getting bigger and bigger, we are very much keeping the like small team atmosphere where everyone's involved in everything. Not and by involved in everything, everyone isn't responsible for everything, but everyone kind of has a say in everything that's going on. Everything is very open and public. And so... People who work here, they aren't just circuit designer number five or test engineer number four. You're a member of a team, and even though you work in one area, you might get asked questions constantly about something else that you might also be good at. And so you, we do our best to take advantage of everyone's full skill set, um, which when you have a broad skill set, it's very normal to end up in career positions where you don't really get to utilize all of them because maybe you're really good at one of them or maybe only one of them is needed at your particular job. For example, my main responsibility is designing the circuits, but I really enjoy the test side of things, connecting all the wires, programming the instruments that are collecting the data, analyzing the data. And so I, I get to be very close to that process, even though that's not my main responsibility. I, I get to like provide feedback. I get to look at what the other guys are doing. I get to you know interrupt them and poke my head in provide suggestions whether they're helpful or not and i get the feeling that's not something that you get to do in larger companies or more more corporate environments so this feels it's all very collaborative and open and fun awesome did i miss anything is there anything i didn't ask you that you think i should have asked you or anything you want to talk about 
I think I spoke more about quantum computing than I ever have in my life. So. <laughs> you know, uh, any of those like designs you're making, you want to get tattoos of? As what? <laughs> okay, if if I designed something that solved the problem or executed something in a way that had never been done before, I would 100% get it. Something like that tattooed on me to remind myself that I did that thing before anybody else could. That's cool. Yeah. Is that why you make them look like flowers and stuff? <laughs> 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 so they can make sure it looks good. Why is it, it fits perfectly on his back? <laughs> and there's a little spot there. <laughs> I'm actually glad. So like you got, they had me write the equations on the wall, yeah, yeah, on the mural, cool. and I'm glad that like I wasn't wearing shorts because like I I literally have equations tattooed on my leg, yeah, okay. and I got these on my 18th birthday. So, can we, yeah, we'll get, we'll, get it, we'll get it at some point. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I got these on my 18th birthday before. I, I didn't even know what they meant, really. Like, I had read a Carl Sagan book where he described Maxwell's equations in this way, and he never even wrote them down in the book, so I didn't know what they were. But I Googled Maxwell's equations and was like, that looks awesome. <laughs> and I got it tattooed on my leg by someone who also didn't know what they meant. And then th- three years later in my physics class, I'm like, that's what they mean, and I, at least I did it in the right units. And it, it makes sense. Yeah. That would have been funny if it was wrong. <laughs> it would have been terrifying because I am constantly running into people who would be like, who are electrical engineers or something who know what they are. And in, 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 my, in grad school, they always joked about making me cover it up before I would take tests. But then they're like, if it's tattooed on your body, you better have it memorized. And I'm like, yeah, that's fair. Thanks for listening. For more of these conversations, go to wherever you get your podcasts, search Conversations for the Quantum Age, and hit subscribe. You can learn more about Seek and the work they do by going to seek.com. That's S-E-E-Q-C dot com. This conversation was recorded at Seek's headquarters in Elmsford, New York. The series is produced by Seek creative director Frederick Hallstrom, who also did the interview. It was edited and sound engineered by Badia Shihab. The title music was composed by Anders Okergren using sounds recorded at the Seek Chip Foundry in Elmsford, New York. My name is Tyler McLean. See you next time. Mm-hmm.